PCSJ Beyond the Article. My name is Julia Largent, and I'm the managing editor for PCSJ. In each episode, I will interview an author or authors recently published in our journal, the Popular Cultural Studies Journal. This episode, I interview Erica Arvet, author of The Timeliness of Hamilton, an American Musical, which is published in Volume 8, Issue 2.5. A link to the article will be in the show notes for this episode. Erica Arvet is a graduate of Moorhead State University and Marshall University with degrees in visual arts and English. She is currently teaching upper school writing, rhetoric, and logic at Covenant School in Huntington, West Virginia, where she lives with her husband, Brian, and their golden doodle, Leon. Enjoy the episode. Sure. Uh, my name is Erica Arvetz, and I am from Huntington, West Virginia, best arm state in the union. And <laughs> um, I obviously like to spend a lot of time writing and reading. Um, I, I love nerd things. I'm into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I love video games. Um, but I also am about 80 years old on the inside, and I like old <laughs> books and black and white movies. <laughs> Same. What is your favorite MCU film? Do you have a favorite on that? Uh, Black Panther, probably. Yeah. I That was definitely one of my favorites. And I'm a sucker for Ant-Man, too. Oh, yeah. that's fair. I always forget Ant-Man exists. Well, and honestly. this is the, the concept of, like, something that's really small that gets really big. Like, the, the Thomas the Tank Engine, when it just blows up really large, just cracks me up. And so there's that little Also, Thomas of... the Tank Engine is terrifying anyway. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. It's very true. And so, yeah. Um, after uh, Chadwick Boseman died, my roommate and I watched uh, Black Panther. She hadn't seen it yet. And so I'm like, we have to watch this. And so it was it was nice to revisit that as kind of that memorial aspect of, mm-hmm. of um, Chadwick Boseman. So, yeah. My sister saw the movie for the first time about a week before he died. And I had to pass oh, on no. the news. And I was like, I was so sad. Yeah. Did you cry during um, Endgame? I did not, but it's because I'm not a movie crier. I came extremely oh. close to crying. Wow. Um, I I cried everything. So <laughs> it's kind of it's it's the reverse of that. Like it's a did I not cry? Like um, the new there was that Christopher Robin um, film a year oh, or two ago with the Winnie yeah, the Pooh one. And I was so close to crying, but I didn't. And I was like, yes. That movie I was so good. Something. My husband and I will <laughs> randomly just say, may I have a traveling balloon? <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't like balloons. And so that part actually freaked me out the entire time that like he played with the balloon. And I was just like, can you, can you just not? As long as I don't believe the balloon is going to pop, we're fine. If the balloon mm-hmm. pops. See, mine's floating away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not worried about it popping. Mine is all about the release of it and like letting go and like being sad that you can never get that balloon back. I don't know. I was scarred as a child, evidently. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so when you're not researching, what are some things you like to do? What are some of your favorite hobbies or um, things that people might not expect out of you? Oh dear. Well, I love 
board games, um, specifically obscure board games. Do not talk to me mm-hmm. about Monopoly. Okay. It's the most <laughs> overrated game in the world. Yes. Um, right. I'm like, and how many times have you actually finished a game of Monopoly? Probably <laughs> not very bored. <laughs> right. It's terrible. Um, but I love obscure board games. Um, I do love video games. I'm into Final Fantasy, Kingdom Hearts, Skyrim, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm really not very interesting, honestly. <laughs> I have a dog that I trained and that's a fun time, but otherwise me and my husband hang out. We play video games together. We read books together and we watch it's kind of fun. Netflix binges. <laughs> yeah. So the, the tough question that I can never answer, what's your favorite obscure board game then? Munchkin. If, okay. Okay. I haven't played Munchkin in a while. Um, the version I have is like a board game. It's not actually just the card game. And mm-hmm. it was the first introduction of Munchkin. And I was so confused about what was happening. Um, mm-hmm. But I do, I kind of like just the standard deck way better yeah. than this deluxe version that I have. Yeah, I have the deluxe version and that's fine because it's really not any different except that it has the board to keep track of levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's my favorite game and none of my friends will play it with me because <laughs> oh, no. um, the one, the other ones who like long board games or odd board games, he says he dies every time he plays Munchkin. So he never wants to play with, with me. I think he's just bitter I, that he lost. <laughs> I have a friend who, when we play Pandemic, he doesn't actually like to play the game. He wants to be the disease and put the, the cubes on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, okay, that's fine. Have fun. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works for you. <laughs> go for it yeah yeah so what's your background how did you get like how did you get into popular culture studies um or researching that area um a lot of people don't necessarily realize the area exists um and so what was kind of your your road to pop culture if you will okay. um well my background is in um, I actually studied art originally um, and I was doing a lot of work with graphic novels at that time and then um, I got my master's in English and that's where I that's where I teach and where I'm doing my you know major work these days but um, I think I just decided that I wanted to write about what I liked um, when I wrote this particular paper uh, the timeliness of Hamilton Um, it was originally intended to be part of my master's portfolio. Um, it's since had, you know, several rounds of revision and et cetera. But, um, when I was trying to figure that out, you know, there wasn't any, there is no particular like literary theory or camp that I'm really drawn to. And I just go, Oh, I can't wait to apply this lens to this text. You know, that's not really, um, how my brain works, but I can talk all day about, things that I just like. And I really like to take a rhetorical approach because my my emphasis is in teaching composition and rhetoric. Um, So that's kind of how I started treating everything as rhetoric. And now I'm like, oh, I can analyze, I can analyze anything, (laughs) you know, everything is rhetoric. Let's talk about it. Do you find that the more that you research pop culture, the more that it ruins it for yourself? Like, do you, do you ever like, man, I just wish I could turn off my brain or just enjoy this like the masses do? Or do you kind of still enjoy (laughs) having that scholarly lens to look at pop culture? Uh, I like having the scholarly lens. Um, I'm a little bit snooty in that I am, 
I joke that I'm the anti-basic white girl. Um, I don't ever want to enjoy <laughs> enjoy anything the way the quote unquote the masses do because I'm a snob apparently. But I um, I like applying. I like having some context for what I'm looking at. Um, I think I think that's maybe why I don't gravitate as strongly to like any particular camp of literary theory is because I'm like, no, you're going to ruin it for me. But um, when I look at things through kind of a cultural, psychological, rhetorical lens, it just kind of enhances the experience for me instead of uh, ruining it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what drew you to Hamilton? Well, I came kicking and screaming. <laughs> um, I was not particular, I like musicals, but I started listen. I tried to listen to it because um, students that I was working with in like middle schools uh, were really into it. And I was like, what are these kids talking about? They're, they're listening to this all the time. I didn't know anything about it. So I went in, I was not expecting rap and hip hop. I was not expecting uh, people of color playing the American Founding Fathers. So I was just kind of like caught off guard by it. And I'm not normally uh, a big hip hop listener. Um, I'm more of a punk rock fan. So I tried it, I couldn't really get into it, but then I revisited it again later uh, when my roommates started listening to it all the time. And then I was like, I can't get these songs out of my head. And the more I looked into it, the more I was like, this is brilliant. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is a genius. Who says they're going to just sit and read an 800 page book about Alexander right. Hamilton on, on like vacation? vacation, on vacation yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, that's what yeah, I he's like, on I'm just vacation. on my float in Mexico. I think I'll read about <laughs> Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. And so while, while we're getting into kind of the, the crux of your article, can you kind of summarize quickly the article of like what what is your article about for those who haven't read it yet? It's a big so question. So the timeliness of Hamilton kind of argues that the reason that Hamilton was so successful and so quote unquote revolutionary, pun intended, um, was because the timing was so perfect. It took content and form and combined them in a way that would appeal to a really broad audience because historically, uh, rap and hip hop have not been very successful on Broadway, but Hamilton seems to have kind of changed that, um, partially because it combined content that the average American is willing to to hear and accept, and it combined with a popular music form that it appealed to a lot of audiences. Because we call it a hip hop musical, but it's really it's a wide variety of musical genres. Um, so I think that it was successful because America was ready for it. And if it had been done at another time, it probably would not have been successful. What was something that hit you while you were writing the article? What, um, you know, what's the thing like, wow, I just, you know, never thought about that happening. And it came out in your research. Um, I think the fact that I was just sharing about this paper today with a colleague and he commented about we had our first black president in the White House when Hamilton premiered. And then simultaneously, the first president was played by a black man on Broadway. So we had like a black first president and a first black president um, at the same time. And that was just kind of a cool, beautiful cultural moment. 
um, that I probably didn't fully appreciate. Um, I guess not entirely as a rhetorical choice, but I didn't really grasp that and the kind of beautiful symmetry of that until I started my research. Yeah. Well, and there was the other point, it was towards the end of the article where you, you point out that the day that it was, that Hamilton got nominated for, I forget how many Tonys was the 16. day that Trump won. Yeah. Trump won the Indiana primary yes. and I'm from Indiana. And so that was like, whoa, this is way yeah. too close of a, you know, kind of the same day that these two things happened. It was really just that the same juxtaposition of, you know, the first black president and then the black, first black president on Broadway. And then we kind of have the opposite of that yeah. um, mm -hmm. on the other end of it. And so it's like, oh, oh, I don't know how to feel yeah. about this. It was really interesting because I think another thing that gave Hamilton a big boost was like how the glowing reviews from the Obama White House. Um, so we had just come from this administration that was really interested in like celebrating diversity and they were like yes Hamilton it's great go see it um, and then we immediately like the year after Hamilton premieres go into this kind of anti-immigration phase when Hamilton's really a musical that celebrates uh, the immigrants of America's past so we have this again a weird juxtaposition where obviously on a political spectrum a lot of people are being very anti-immigration, but then we have a lot of people who are just combating that and saying, you know, hashtag name a Pence musical, like we're just going to go out and keep yelling immigrants, we get the job done. <laughs> right. What is one thing that you hope for the reader of the article to take away? I hope that they'll understand that history is shaped by those who tell the story. Um, that's kind of the big theme of Hamilton. And um, one of the things that I'm appreciating more and more these days is, you know, history is fact. We can't alter fact, events occurred, but there is something we need to take into consideration as to, you know, who decided which things I got to hear about the past, um, who decided which story of history I was going to tell because we can't possibly know all of the things that happened. Someone has to make decisions about what to include and what to leave out. Um, so while many uh, stories about the American founding are very celebratory and, you know, they paint the founding fathers as these like colossal intellects and virtuous men, like Hamilton, I think tries to, it does that to some degree but I think it also tries to kind of tackle their humanity and their mistakes and um, show some parts of history that we, may, we maybe wouldn't have heard about um, on an average day at school. Makes sense. Um, so Hamilton hit Disney Plus back in June this past summer, and which was a nice, you know, I, I guess something thanks to COVID. I, I don't know how to feel about that, but one thing that struck me is I have, I still have not seen it on stage. The only version of it I've seen is through Disney plus. And so I've been listening to the soundtrack for a handful of years now and didn't quite follow some of the story. And so I'm curious, like, I didn't realize the different characters that sang the different songs. And it, it never really occurred to me that some of the same actors played two different parts, um, which is an interesting way to kind of reuse cast. And I'm sure there was more than that for that reason. Um, but I'm curious if there's anything that you notice from the rhetoric side of how people who 
only have listened to it but haven't seen it and those who have seen it and how the stories are different and so one example spoiler if you've not seen it at the very end um you know there's the gasp and that's not on the soundtrack and so the first time I watched it I was like wow that's that's different that's something that wasn't there Mm -hmm. so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that um, so I, I did get to see it on stage um, last year. My uh, my wonderful best friends took me as my like uh, uh, bachelorette party when I got married last year. And uh, so I got to see it in Louisville. And the few things that really struck me that I wouldn't have known just from listening to the soundtrack, there were the big things like, like Eliza's gasp at the end or like John Lauren's um, spoiler alert, John Lawrence dies um, after the war was already over because news took so long to travel back then. He was killed in a battle after the war had ended. Uh, and that's not in the soundtrack. They kind of skip over that and move to the next thing. Which this very fortunately is, uh, it's sung and wrapped all the way through. So there's very little, you know, audibly that you don't get from the soundtrack. Um, but a few of the more interesting rhetorical choices that happen physically, um, the entire production is made on a revolving stage. Um, so that plays a lot into the way characters move and the way they interact with each other. Uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting was the bullet is essentially played by a person. Um, and the same person plays the, the proverbial bullet all the way through the play. And there are many, many moments where Hamilton is writing and he almost gets shot. A bullet like goes right over his head and he doesn't even notice. Or where Philip Hamilton, I almost said Philip Schuyler and I was like, that's not the right Philip. <laughs> Philip Hamilton um, is about to go duel George Eaker and he's literally flirting with death. The girl that he's talking to in that song is the same girl that plays the bullet who later shoots him. Um, so there were just some really cool things that went into the visual aspects that you couldn't fully appreciate from looking at the, uh, just the soundtrack. Yeah. I remember reading about that bullet right after, after it hit Disney, there were a bunch of articles that kind of hit and think pieces. And I remember reading about the bullet and just being like, like mind blown of like just that, that use on the stage of a person to demonstrate the bullet. Um, and I'm not a theater scholar, and so I'm sure this isn't, you know, this might not be a brand new thing, but for me, it was like, whoa, this is cool. Mm-hmm. So speaking of, of kind of the Broadway aspect of Lin-Manuel, Miranda had a previous hit. So In the Heights came out a handful of years earlier. I think it was the late 2000s, if I remember correctly. Um, and although not, I'm sorry? 2008, I think. Yeah, yeah that sounds right. Um, so although not nearly as big as a hit as Hamilton, it still hit big. It was, you know, it won some awards, uh, was nominated for others. And it also utilizes hip hop, not to the same extent that Hamilton does. Um, and it uses a couple different genres as um, there's some salsa thrown in as well. Um, and I'm curious, um, and you talk about this a little bit in the article, but do you think that um, his previous success on this stage within the Heights and this kind of dabbling into the hip hopness, as well as, you know, some of the other things you talk about, did that kind of lend itself to making the audience prime for this sort of new style of Broadway music? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, because something like Hamilton, like it feels overnight, but it doesn't actually happen overnight. There's steps leading up to it. There had been plenty of hip hop musicals on Broadway. They just weren't very successful. Um, in the Heights was certainly more successful than a lot of its predecessors. Um, it, as you said, uses hip hop and rap and salsa and show tunes and a lot of different things. But I think that certainly started to kind of prepare people to see, especially in the like critical theatrical world, because it won some Tony Awards, things like that, uh, prepared people to see, you know, people of color using rap, using hip hop, using culturally relevant music um, to, to communicate a story. Because in this case, uh, I believe it was I believe it was Tommy Kale said that In the Heights was one of the first times that hip hop or rap was used as form, not content. Uh, it didn't have anything to do with the world of hip hop or rap. It just was the manner in which the story was told, which was unique. And that's something that um, Hamilton did on a much larger scale later. Where did you start with this project? So you kind of commented it was part of your master's um, you know, what was the first thing you did when you decided that you were going to start something about Hamilton? Where'd you start? Oh um, well, I think the first thing I did was just go see what had already been written. I got a bunch of books and said, all right, what are people talking about here and how can I apply it? Um, and I pretty quickly found that a lot had been written about Hamilton, but not a lot had been written about the rhetoric of Hamilton as far as the, um, particularly the timeliness of it. Um, many, many people have argued that Hamilton was timely, but that wasn't usually the crux of the argument. So I felt like that was a really important aspect of the play and one that for which there was kind of a gap in the research and I wanted to kind of fill that in. All right, so in your article, you have um, a sentence and I'm gonna quote the sentence. Um, okay. So quote, after decades of whiteness on Broadway, Hamilton came at the right time when the nation was ready to receive a musical that reflected its changing culture, end quote. Um, can, you, can you expand on this? What about 2015 when it premiered made it the right time? And do you think 2020 would have been the right time or would it have been the wrong time? Or is it a completely different time? Right. Um, I think in 2015, there were some senses in which we were open to this particular narrative, um, like we're okay with seeing a Black president, which maybe we wouldn't have been before 2008. Um, so we're okay with some, some of these ideas of retelling the story or of putting people of color in spaces where we previously hadn't seen them as much. Um, we're also seeing a lot of just general push for representation in a lot of different media, which continued to kind of come out through the rest of that decade, um, which I've talked about this some as well. You know, we've seen that in the Marvel comics with like Black Latino Spider-Man and, you know, a female Thor and et cetera. Um, so it was kind of a culminating moment for this demand of representation that had been coming on like exigence answers a problem that exists. And we had built up enough at this time that we can say, okay, here's the answer. Um, I, I like to think that Hamilton could have been just as successful if it came out in 2020. Um, though I think, I think it coming out on Disney Plus this year kind of testifies to that because the people who didn't listen to the soundtrack or who couldn't get into just a soundtrack started watching it and were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. My husband had never 
you know, done anything with Hamilton other he like, I would listen to it in the car and he'd be like, she's so weird. What is she listening to? <laughs> and we watched it and he was like, that was good. I like it. And then now we've watched it like three times and he's like, I love it. Every song is straight fire. <laughs> uh, but so I like to think it would be just as successful now, but it is a different time um, because the political polarity that we're experiencing was just starting when Hamilton first came out. I think there might be some now who would reject it on the premise of what it is. Um, maybe not. Maybe I'm being a cynic, but I, I, I think it might meet slightly more resistance in some places now. Yeah, and I, I think more so the, the people of color who are playing the different founding fathers I think that's the part that would have more resistance than anything among mm-hmm. individuals now. And, and you still get that, that conversation. And I know this is big um, within, you know, theater casting of, you, you know, do you cast who you have or do you cast, do you go seek out individuals? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a hard question to answer. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same thing with, with hiring committees at you know, universities. If, if no one applies, you can't hire someone. Um, who is not a white guy but at the same time what is the that department doing what's the college doing to seek out and um, make comforting I guess make welcoming that's the better word um, to bring individuals in who are not white men Um, so it's it's a it's a hard thing to happen and I think a lot of people grapple with that issue and some more than others and diversity is hard. Like if you if you want to have a diverse environment and keep it diverse, that's very difficult to do. Like it's not just a matter of, oh, let's all get along with each other. Like I've been doing a lot of reading <laughs> this summer um, and I'm learning more and more how difficult it is to create space and maintain it. Um, and what's really beautiful about Hamilton is that rather than like, in university where we probably already have a mostly white hiring committee trying to not hire just white people um, is a person of color has stepped up and kind of said, I'm gonna make my own space with which to hire people of color um, in an industry that I love. So I think that's a really cool aspect of it as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's next for you? What's your next project? Are you gonna write more on Hamilton? Are you moving off to something else? Um, I haven't planned on writing anything else about Hamilton for now. Um, I'm in the process of revising with the uh, Journal of Popular Culture an article about um, Natsuki Takaya's manga Fruits Basket, which is my favorite manga of all time, um, and writing about trauma in that. Um, and when that wraps up, I, I have like three different ideas. It's every time I read oh, or what my husband gets, my husband gets so <laughs> sick of me because every time we finish a movie that I love, I'm like, oh, I want to write a paper about that. And he's like, I need to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do yeah. something very similar. And I, I've learned to also just keep those thoughts to myself because not everyone is so interested in what I have to say about <laughs> the thing we just watched. I've yeah. already contacted a bunch of people because I'm like, ooh, I'm interested in writing about Nightcrawler. Send me everything you know. Oh, I'm interested in writing about Pan's Labyrinth. Tell me everything. Literally going to get off yeah. this and email someone about we have always lived in the castle. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm the same way. And I think that's the plight of the, the media scholar um, is you can't watch something and not think about, you know, how can I turn this into 
a paper or, you know, this is super fascinating. I want to write about this. I remember quite a few years ago, there was, um, I can't remember the name of it now. I never actually saw it, but it was the the first person action film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like Harry or Henry or something. Totally lost the name of it. And I went and saw the trailer for it. Um, I think it was in front of Deadpool. And I was like, oh, I want to write a paper on that. And then I never did anything with it. But like, I have those thoughts all the time of like, I'm going to write a paper on this. And, or my other one is I want someone else to write this because I want to read it, but I don't want to be the one to write it. Well, I can just, I can consume media so much faster than I can write about it. Cause it's like, okay, yeah. if I start writing about this, this is a month's long commitment minimum, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I'm like, oh, what's my next thing going to be that I'm going to spend the next half a year working on probably right, right. in the midst of a bunch of other stuff. So it's really <laughs> hard to decide. And sometimes, I don't know, I just see which one forms a thesis more easily for me, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I've got at least three ideas right now and I'm not sure which one I'm going to start next. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, what is one piece of advice that you have for a young popular culture scholar? Okay. Um, revise, revise, and then revise some more. Um, particularly when you're seeking publication or you're working on like higher level um, academic writing, uh, people are not telling you, hey, work on this uh, for for kicks and giggles. You should probably actually look into doing it. Um, The biggest thing for me has been making sure that I'm including what I'm talking about in a larger conversation. because Hamilton doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, Hamilton is really a product of a lot of musicals and a lot of rap and hip hop music that came before it. Um, And so is every piece of popular culture. It exists in a rhetorical situation and it it had work building up to it. So include things in the conversation and revise when your editors tell you to revise. Um, Well, thank you so much. Uh, That's all I have. Thank Um, you. Yeah, this was fun. Um, I look forward to seeing your your next article, whenever that is. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Tune in to our next episode when I interview Jodi Cooper about her recently published article, We Couldn't Do This Without You, Filmmaker Labor in Collaborating and Co-Creating with Audiences which can be found in Volume 8, Issue 2.5. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to stay up to date with our episodes. If you have any questions or would like to connect with PCSJ, check us out on Twitter at ThePCSJ. You can also find more information on our website, mpcaaca.org, and then navigate to the PCSJ tab on the menu. Thanks for listening.